Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Daniel Montano. The medications Suboxone and Methadone are currently the number one evidence-based most effective treatment for opioid use disorder. The medications can treat cravings, relieve painful withdrawal symptoms, and allow people who struggle with substance use the chance to live a stable, normal life. It gives people the opportunity to break an incredibly deeply ingrained daily cycle of use. For many people, it's their first break in years from the daily grind of addiction, the ceaseless quest for the next hit, constantly scraping, scrounging, begging, and yes, sometimes stealing, doing whatever one has to do in order to stave off withdrawal sickness and cravings. For some people, those medications are their only chance to break out of that way of life. Not only that, but we have evidence to back up the anecdotes. Hard scientific data supports the claim that these medications can make a difference in people's lives. I'll go over those details of those studies in with one of my guests in just a moment, but suffice it to say the literature is clear. Medically assisted treatment, or MAT, is the first line treatment for opiate use disorders. We also know a whole lot of prisoners do a whole lot of drugs. While the exact numbers are difficult to pin down, most studies say about two in three have an active addiction of some sort, and even more were impaired at the time they committed the crime that landed them in custody, about 20% more, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So with these two facts in mind, one would be forgiven for mistaking methadone or suboxone to be one of the most highly prescribed medications in correctional facilities. But the truth is, less than 5% of prisoners are on any sort of mat, and less than 200 facilities out of the thousands and thousands of state prisons, county jails, and metro lockups across the United States even offer methadone or suboxone. That means even people who are actively in recovery out in the community often have to give up these medications when they go into a facility. Plus, of course, there are those who are addicted to illicit opiates as well, but regardless of the circumstances, the result is the same. The individual in question is forced to go through intense withdrawals in an already stressful and possibly traumatizing situation. Moreover, these people lose their tolerance to drugs while inside, leaving them vulnerable to an overdose upon release. Today on Let's Talk New Mexico, we have two guests with us in studio who are part of efforts to change all that here in the land of enchantment. First, we have Dr. Nathan Birnbaum. He is an assistant professor of family and community medicine at the University of New Mexico and a doctor with UNM's Health Sciences Center. He's leading an effort to change the law in New Mexico to make MAT standard, make it available to all inmates regardless of where they are booked in the state. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Birnbaum. Thank you. We also have Lolita Moskowitz. She's the litigation manager for the ACLU of New Mexico, and she is working on a lawsuit that says these medications are not only a moral imperative, but a legal constitutional right. Hello, Lolita. Thank you so much. And of course, dear listener, we want to hear from you as well. Give us your thoughts and opinions. You can give us a call at 505-277-5866. You can send us a tweet using the hashtag Let's Talk NM, all one word, or you can send an email to Let's Talk at KUNM.org. Do you or a loved one take one of these medications? And what would it be like if you were suddenly forced to stop taking them? Why do you think they should be provided or why not? Again, give us a call. 505-277-5866. That's 277-KUNM. 
Just a note before we start, I did reach out to the New Mexico Corrections Department to ask them to be a part of the show. However, as they are a litigant in the very lawsuit we will be discussing today, they instead issued a statement, and I was able to get some background information from an official that we'll get to in a minute here. In addition, before we start the discussion as well, I wanted to recognize that Bernalillo County's Metropolitan Detention Center actually does have a MAT program. It's one of the first in the nation and one of only 11 accredited by the National Council on Correctional Health Care. We've originally planned on having their director here to discuss the program, but he was unable to attend. That being said, we will go into some of the details of the program later in the show today. For now, though, I'd like to start things off with you, Dr. Birnbaum, if you don't mind. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. It's a joy to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. And first off, would you like to share a little bit of your background, both as a, a doctor and how you ended up in the world of addiction medicine and how you ended up trying to change law? Sure. I am a family physician here at UNM and have spent a significant portion of my both pre-medical as well as short, at this point, medical career working with individuals returning home from the criminal legal system. So I was a part of a group that is now a national network of clinics that provides care, primary care to individuals returning home as well as employing formerly incarcerated individuals as community health workers to provide social service navigation for those individuals. And that has been shown to reduce rates of emergency department use and increase use of primary care clinics so that people can integrate health care as one aspect in improving their chances of reentry and uh, restabilizing their lives when they come home. Gotcha. Well, thank you very much for being here with us. Um, I guess to start things out, can you help us understand a little bit about how MAT works? A common objection that we might hear is that you're simply replacing one addiction for another. Um, how is MAT different from just replacing addictions? Yeah, so medication for addiction treatment or MAT typically refers to three medications that have been approved by the FDA. That includes injectable naltrexone, which is often called Vivitrol, methadone, and buprenorphine, which can come as a medication alone, buprenorphine, which is called Subutex, or as a form combined with naloxone, which is also called Suboxone. There are other forms as well, uh, one of the most common being Sublocade, which is basically Suboxone in the injectable form. And these medications work by stabilizing your brain chemistry and decreasing cravings and preventing illicit drug use of opioids without causing the same high that, say, fentanyl or heroin or oxycodone might cause, because those tend to cause euphoria. They act in a short period of time, whereas medication for addiction treatment is a longer acting substance and it doesn't work the same way. Many people actually say that once they are stable on medication for addiction treatment, they feel normal. They don't have those same cravings. They don't have those same levels of withdrawal. So it opens them up to the ability to do the other things that they need to do to be stable in their recovery. For example, dealing with trauma if they have that or other comorbid mental health issues. So it's really a part of a whole patient approach to the treatment of substance use disorder. Okay. And speaking of, you know, the whole patient approach, you generally do primary care and, and family medicine sort of stuff, correct? That is correct. Right. And, you know, I've, I've kind of covered a lot of addiction stuff in my career as a journalist. One of the things that um, I've, I've seen that's 
that can come up is as a, a, a primary care doctor, how often does addiction come up in your practice? Is it something you see commonly? I see an average of at least five patients a week who are on medication for addiction treatment. There are some days where, in fact, I will have multiple patients who are on medication for addiction treatment. In my case, that is most commonly individuals who are on Suboxone. I am not a methadone provider, but there has been a lot of success in my clinic and among my colleagues here at UNM in getting people stable on MAT. Okay. And then um, for Matt, what is the current status quo, the lay of the land as it, as it were? Um, if, you know, somebody out there on the street wants to get on medically assisted treatment, uh, can they just go to their doctor and say, hey, can you give me Suboxone? Or how does that work? Do they have to go to specialized clinics? What, what is the... Yeah, so we should distinguish between different forms of medication for addiction treatment. Methadone, which is one of the most commonly known forms of this, people need to go to specialized treatment facilities that have been licensed by the government to provide methadone, and they typically provide wraparound care. People need to report at uh, different time intervals depending on where they are in their recovery to get their methadone, whereas Suboxone is more of an office-based medication. And if a patient was to come to me and say, I'm using opioids, I would like to get on Suboxone, I would begin the process of induction sometimes on the same day depending on their circumstances. Previously, we required a type of special waiver to provide buprenorphine. It was called the X waiver, but under the most recent omnibus bill that was signed uh, by President Biden at the end of last year, we expect that that waiver is going to go away, which promises the ability for more primary care providers and interested providers to be able to provide this necessary treatment for people. That's excellent. That's good news. Um, and then just to be clear, uh, so listeners uh, know as well, um, with the other medications that are most common, um, besides methadone and, and suboxone, the Vivitrol and the Sublocate are not nearly as commonly um, prescribed, correct? That is correct. So Vivitrol, which is the injectable form of a medication called naltrexone, is much less commonly used in the community, although I will say that it has been marketed heavily to correctional departments across the United States, despite the fact that evidence shows that it is not nearly as effective as methadone or buprenorphine. In fact, they just did a revision of the major study that has been used to um, provide advocacy for Vivitrol. And what they found is that instead of being equivalent to Suboxone or buprenorphine, people are actually up to 2.5 times as likely to overdose on Vivitrol compared to buprenorphine. So while it is marketed heavily, it has not been shown to be as effective and specifically not as effective for people returning home from the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, speaking of people returning home from the criminal justice system, uh, you know, just how dangerous is it to take people off of these medications? You know, we, we've heard about overdoses when people return home, but is, is that actually an issue that comes up? 
Yeah, evidence shows that tapering or discontinuing medication for addiction treatment leads to high rates of relapse. Because what you're doing is you're taking somebody whose brain structure and function may have been deeply impacted by the use of illicit opioids, MAT or MAT stabilizes that brain chemistry. And when you force somebody into withdrawal, you're all of a sudden taking away that stability. So what do we know? We know that individuals who are returning home from the criminal justice system are disproportionately likely to overdose and die. One of the seminal studies around this showed that in the first two weeks after people are released from prison, they are up to 130 times as likely to die of a drug overdose compared to the general population. In the state of New Mexico, looking at 2020 data, they found that nearly 13% of people who died that year year of drug overdose in our state were people who had been released from an institutional setting. More so, recent data shows that people who are released from our corrections department in the first six months are 11 times as likely to die of a drug overdose. So taking away these medications is setting people up for failure. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty clear. Uh, you know, those numbers don't, don't seem to lie. Um, as already discussed, there are a very few facilities willing to distribute any sort of MAT medications at all, but the places that do offer something, even fewer offer methadone or Suboxone, instead relying on Vivitrol. Um, do, you, do you think there's any reason why Vivitrol is, is you know, chosen above methadone or Suboxone? Yeah, I can say that the decision of what medication to put somebody on should be a decision that is made between a healthcare provider and the patient. And there is no one strategy that fits all patients. And so some patients may choose to be on Vivitrol. It is not an opioid. And some people, especially those who might be more stable in their recovery, may feel that they want this medication. And just because it has not been shown to be as a effective at preventing overdose and death compared to methadone and buprenorphine, that doesn't mean that we should take away this FDA-approved form of MAT from people. We should let this be a conversation between a healthcare practitioner and their patient. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Daniel Montano. We're talking about medically assisted treatment for opioid addiction in correctional settings. We've been speaking with Dr. Nathan Birnbaum, and we'll continue that conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Contributing members ensure KUNM can continue to share stories that inform and inspire audiences with important local news, information, and cultural programming. Thank you for your support. KUNM, powered by you. A famous mountain lion that lived in the hills near Los Angeles just died. Area tribes are working with wildlife officials to honor the lion known as P-22 beyond his scientific contributions. In the process, they're providing insights into tribes' cultural connection to mountain lions and other animals. We'll hear about the life and importance of P-22 on the next Native America Calling. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Daniel Montano, and we are taking your calls about medically assisted treatment for opioid use disorder in jails and prisons. You can give us a call at 505-277-5866 or email let's talk at kunm.org and tell us your story. Again, that's 505-277-5866. You can also send us a tweet using the hashtag let's talk NM. And we already do have a caller this morning, but before we get to that caller, um, Lolita, I'd like to move to you a little bit now, if we could. You work with the ACLU. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do, and how you ended up there with the ACLU? Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, I'm an attorney with the ACLU of New Mexico, and my work in particular focuses on the rights and the needs of folks who are incarcerated in our state in prisons and jails. So I've spent the last uh, four and a half years about talking to incarcerated folks, representing folks in civil rights challenges, and hearing what the most important issues are uh, for people who are in the system. And that is how, you know, we, we came to this lawsuit where we heard from people who had had to withdraw from life-saving medication um, who were, uh, you know, caught up in the in the criminal legal system because of addiction and then were forced to withdraw from uh, either substances they were using or life-saving treatment that they were able to receive um, in the community or at MDC. Um, and so we're, we're significantly set back um, in their recovery by the uh, New Mexico prison system. And so we wa- wanted to seek to address that issue. Awesome. Okay. And the Department of Justice has recently released guidance that says that denying MAT to inmates could be a violation of the ADA, but you say it goes even further than that, that it's a constitutional right. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Absolutely, yes. So the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, requires uh, prisons and jails across the country to provide adequate medical care uh, to people in their custody. Um, And as we heard from Dr. Birnbaum, this is essential medical care. Um, It's an important part of treatment for many, many people. Uh, And so because of that, not providing this medication is considered cruel and unusual punishment. And and additionally, as as we've discussed, um, the corrections department forcing people to withdraw from from medications um, and substances puts people through awful withdrawals, which in and of themselves are sort of cruel and, and painful. And so both not providing necessary medical care and, and forcing people into these um, awful withdrawal um, symptoms and experiences are, are cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. Gotcha. And um, now I'd like to get to our caller here. Um, he would like to remain not anonymous, um, but he's a mental health counselor for the New Mexico Corrections Department. Is that correct? Can you hear me? Yes. All right. Yes, I can. So tell us what you'd like to to say today, caller. Well, I just, I mean, um, as a harm reduction counselor, I I was working on the front lines of the opioid epidemic um, at a methadone clinic uh, in northern New Mexico. And um, so... My, over my years there, I was working with individuals who had already re-entered society mm-hmm. um, and had seen the benefits. And, you know, they were, they were under, you know, probation and parole monitoring. Um, and, you know, a, a, a good part of my uh, caseload uh, were men and women who were 
benefiting greatly from uh, some of these barriers of probation and parole that have been lifted uh, so as to accommodate them and their, their need, you know, to receive MAT. Um, so uh, not long after that, I was able, where I am now, I work for a correctional facility in New Mexico uh, with the department. You know, it's a it's it's a double-edged sword now because um, illicit use at at pretty much all levels of security, and in this state we have six levels of security. Um, uh, illicit use of Suboxone uh, is essentially the number one drug of choice, partly because the withdrawal is not near as um, you know painful as it is with street. Uh, heroin, okay. and you know, sublingual tabs go on the you know, pretty much anywhere from two hundred to three hundred dollars and up. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really grateful that our state is doing some is making strides toward you know um, harm reduction measures, more humane measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I fear that because of the prevalence of abstinence in the judicial system, at least from what I've seen, um, because that seems to be rewarded more. And I, I, I would like to think that, uh, you know, something like Vivitrol might be more appealing in the long run, um, which is time released um, and might be able to be more easily monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm hopeful. I think what you guys are doing is, is, is not only noble, but it's necessary, especially if we look at um, opioid addiction um, as, 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 well, if we look at criminality as being a symptom of addiction. Right. Um, and that it's a, uh, a, uh, to be treated medically uh, rather than punished. Right. For sure. Yeah, thank you. thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your comments. Yeah, no, um, you know, I, I, Nathan, I saw you nodding your head a little bit while you're talking there. It seems like you got something you wanted to say in response to that. Yeah, certainly. So diversion of MAT in correctional facilities is, is, is certainly of concern, but diversion doesn't negate the effectiveness of mm-hmm. MAT, nor does it mean that people are using those medications to get high, right? Similar to in what we see in the community, when you ask people in prisons and jails, why are they using MAT that is not being prescribed to them which would be the standard of care, what they're often saying is that they're using it to self-treat their cravings, to self-treat their withdrawal, to avoid those symptoms, to stop using other opioids, and to really try to continue in their own recovery. So in a way, the risk of diversion should underline the reason that we should have formalized treatment for MAT in these facilities. You would dry up the black market for these if people actually had access to the treatment that they need. There'd be less of a need to be getting $200, $300, or $300 for a sublingual tablet of buprenorphine mm-hmm. 
if people were able to get that treatment from a healthcare provider who is working within the correctional system. Mm-hmm. That makes that makes quite a lot of sense to me. And Lolita, you know. For myself, you know, as soon as I started doing research for this show, you know, it's very quick, about five to ten minutes worth of cursory research, and it becomes very clear very quickly that, um, you know, methadone and Suboxone is the the first-line sort of treatment and that it should be very common. Um, and so it seems almost confusing as to why it's it's not offered so much in, in uh, correctional settings. What other arguments against Matt have you seen in your research leading up to this lawsuit? That's a great question. And um, I I think that's where, where I start, too, is that it, it feels like, as we're talking about, that it should be common sense that treating people um, for their addiction, uh, like Dr. Birnbaum said, would would you know make less of a, a black market for things and would you know give people an opportunity to manage their symptoms uh, in conjunction with a, a doctor and and in a medical way instead of trying to and having to sort of self treat and we just we know that there's still a lot of stigma and misunderstanding of addiction. Um, we know that um, attitudes are starting to change. We're starting to understand addiction differently, but we still see that stigma and, and this attitude that people should be able to just just stop, to just quit. And and we just know that addiction, you know, changes people's brains in a way that, that makes that not possible for most people. Um, but I think we still see that kind of stigma pervasive in the criminal legal system. And we still have a lot of work to sort of educate uh, folks in that system about addiction. And and there are logistical components and our, and our caller in mentioned concern about diversion. And I, I don't have much to add about mm-hmm. to Dr. Birnbaum's response. If, if we give folks the medication they need, you know, they won't have a reason to seek it out yeah. um, outside of that system. But uh, those kind of, you know, logistical concerns are often what come up. But I think stigma really underlies a, a lot of of what we hear um, uh, and why this is not happening. Yeah, so mainly it sounds like logistics, like the caller mentioned, you know, a shot once a month is way easier than administering a dose every day. Um, and then that stigma, you know, you you said that during your research for the trial and for the case, you interviewed inmates in this situation, correct? People that were dealing with this directly. Um, did they say that the stigma, they, they think they feel extra stigma because they are in a correctional facility on top of being an addict? Yes, absolutely. And and you make a good point that there's stigma around addiction. And then, of course, there's so much stigma around involvement in the criminal legal system. And so folks in those settings have, you know, this stigma and sort of um, people disregarding their needs from a number of, of fronts. And people absolutely report that they feel stigmatized. And we see this um, even in the really tragic, really tragic story that came um, out of MDC recently, a woman who died there in their sort of quote, you know, detox unit. Um, and some of the things that workers in the facility were saying about sort of, oh, if you, you know, if you don't want to feel this way, you know, just just don't do drugs. If you mm-hmm. just don't, uh, you know, this is, you know, why you should make different choices or what have you that that misses the point. Um, but I think that's a, such a, a clear example of, of the stigma that people do you face um, in, in trying to get treatment and, and address their addiction. Right. Now, um, you know, Dr. Birnbaum, we've, we've talked a lot about the way MAT works and its benefits. Um, would you mind telling me a little bit about what you've been working on now and how you've been leading the fight from, for treatments out of the doctor's office and into the state legislature? 
Yeah, certainly. We have seen that other states have had successful approaches when they provide all forms of MAT to people in the correctional system. For example, Rhode Island was the first state in the country that did this back in 2016, and they showed that in the first year after implementing a full MAT program in their prisons and jails, there was an over 60% reduction in overdose deaths in those folks. And that was a large enough change that in a small state like Rhode Island, that led to a 12% reduction in the overall overdose rate for the entire state. As I said before, people coming home from the New Mexico Corrections Department are up to 11 times as likely to die of drug overdose compared to the uh, overall population. So I believe that a disproportionate impact deserves a targeted response. And so here is what Senator Ortiz Pino and Representative Hockman V. Hill will be introducing this legislative session. It would require that all correctional facilities in our state jails and prisons provide all FDA approved forms of MAT to individuals who are seeking treatment for opioid use disorder. Furthermore, it would require that facilities actually start following medical standards of care when it comes to the treatment of withdrawal so that you don't have tragic circumstances such as what Lolita mentioned where people are actually dying when they are detoxing from substances like fentanyl. Furthermore, this legislation would require that our state really begin to coordinate between correctional facilities and community providers so that people who are stable on their treatment while they are incarcerated have a chance to continue that recovery when they come home so that they can rebuild their lives, rebuild their family ties. And we know that this, in other circumstances, has also led greatly to increased community safety and the reduction in substance abuse and criminal activity. So that is the priority this legislative session. Awesome. And speaking of that, so you mentioned a couple names here. So has this already been sponsored or pre-filed already? Or when would you expect to see this hit the legislature? It has already been sponsored. We are gathering supporters. And there's been a lot of positive response to this among legislators. And we expect that the uh, bill will be filed within the next week or so. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. As for the language of the bill itself, since this is relatively new territory, is there a model or a standard basis to use as a reference when building the details of the bill itself? Yeah, certainly there are. As I mentioned, Rhode Island really is the gold standard, but there are a number of other states that are doing this that we can look to for uh guidance. New York just passed this law last year, and there is a lot of really interesting work about how they are not only balancing the needs of urban communities, but also rural communities there in that state. And speaking of more rural states, Vermont also has taken this approach and had great success with it. Uh, there are a number of really wonderful advocates and organizations that provide support to states and other jurisdictions that try to roll out this approach. So yes, there are a number of places that we can look to so that our state can be successful. Awesome. And uh, before we go uh, further, I do just want to get to, we have another caller here. This is Matthew. Matthew is an inpatient nurse at UNM. And Matthew, what did you want to share this morning? Yeah, hi. Uh, good morning. I just wanted to... You still there? Hello? 
Oh, it seems like we lost. Yes, hello. Good morning. Oh, there you are. Sorry, can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, I can. Go I ahead. I apologize. No worries. Um, I just want to. I wanted to share a couple quick things. First, I want to say I think this is a this is some fantastic um, legislation that I hope to see can come through and help um, addicts um, during their incarceration and hopefully continue after their um, incarceration. Um, and I also wanted to share that as an inpatient nurse, um, the uh, I think everyone knows the addiction epidemic is wild right now. I mean, if I have five patients a day, two to three out of them is, are going to have some kind of opioid dependence. Um, these individuals, uh, they know what works for them if they are in recovery. Um, they know what doesn't work for them. Um, and I think... What they would definitely say is what doesn't work for them is interruptions in their treatment. Um, when mm-hmm. methadone is not received, um, when Suboxone is not available, um, it's almost like starting over. Uh, so have to go through the painful process of beginning recovery again. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just want to share that, one, it's, I think everyone knows, but I just want to put my two cents in that it, it is a very large problem. Uh, I think this legislation uh, could help a lot of people. And the other one other thing I wanted to share that I find interesting is um, as a nurse, we do discharge instructions for our patients, um, which include medications and how to care for yourself and uh, follow-up appointments. We have only just begun sharing that um, education information with people who are going back to facilities. Um, um, you know, medication and how to care for yourself. Um, the um, What we still don't share is follow-up appointments just because we don't want uh, them to know in advance when they'll be in an unsecure location. So we're seeing some stuff change at the hospital as far as trying to advocate for people who are going back to jail as well. So um, I do look forward to this bill passing so we can help these people stay on course. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, for your comments. And Nathan, that's actually a, a good question. You know, what do you, you said you've seen there is some support out there for this bill. What do you think the chances are of it actually getting through the legislature this session? I am very confident, as the governor said in her inauguration speech, the treatment of addiction and the safety of our communities is a priority, and this legislation is an important component of that. Our state is also seeing an infusion of money that comes from opioid settlements that come from the fact that drug companies and other organizations took advantage of the population and, as a result, helped kind of start this opioid epidemic. We have money coming from that, and some of that money at least should be going to help this population so that we can decrease overdose here in our state. Mm -hmm. And thank you for bringing up that lawsuit. That's something I'd actually like to discuss. However, we'll have to bring that up in a moment because we do have to go to break. We are talking about addiction treatments in jails and prisons in New Mexico. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Daniel Montano. We'll be back in a minute. Did you resolve to make 2023 the year you'd clear out stuff you don't need anymore? If you have an old car, truck, boat, motorcycle, or farm equipment that isn't worth fixing, we can help you keep that New Year's resolution. Just call 888-KUNM-CAR. We'll tow it away, sell it, and send you a tax receipt. Plus, you'll get a KUNM membership good through the rest of the year. Just call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. 
This week on The Well Woman Show, I interview Erica Hines, principal of Every Level Leadership and author of the Black Women's Thriving Report and Call to Action. I think that if we center Black women and improve the lives of Black women, I think actually everyone's lives are improved by that. Join me, Giovanna Rossi, this Friday at 8 a.m. right here on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We are looking at Matt for opioid use disorders. There is still time to call in this morning at 505-277-5866. You know, we've talked a lot this morning about how some people outside the prison system would like to see changes made to help people suffering with addiction get the best possible treatment. But the system itself already does have some options, and this discussion wouldn't be finished without addressing what those options are and what has already been planned going forward regardless of any legislation or judge's orders. In preparing for the show, I did speak with officials at the New Mexico Corrections Department, but because of the ongoing lawsuit, they weren't able to say too much. Carmelina Hart, the public information officer, did send the following statement. Currently, NMCD works with the University of New Mexico's Milagro program to help support pregnant females who are already on a MAT program when they enter our facilities. In collaboration with the Human Services Department, we were recently awarded a grant for $235,000 by the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, which will run through 2023. With these funds, we will start a pilot program at the Western New Mexico Correctional Facility in Grants. The pilot should result in the development of a well-informed responsible and sustainable system-wide MAT program and help to identify necessary community resources. So I did speak with a corrections official who said uh, that the state would like to start looking for a nurse practitioner or doctor, someone who can actually start writing prescriptions needed to start dispensing the medications at a larger scale. Um, They said that that would be the first step of a much larger plan in the works. Um, But before we go any further, Lolita, I would like to give you a moment to reply to what the state had to say. Sure, absolutely. And you know, I'll start by saying, you know, we're we're glad that the state is is recognizing that this is uh, an issue and and appears to be uh, considering some options. Unfortunately, what we know about the options available right now is that they just are are insufficient. So, of course, the Milagro program is wonderful, um, but only addresses, as you mentioned, um, pregnant people who are. Um, on these medications that we've been discussing. And what we've learned from public information requests is that right now the pilot program that the Department of Corrections is looking at implementing um, is exclusively uh, naltrexone or or Vivitrol, which Dr. Birnbaum talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's for folks who are very close to to release, again, as we understand it. And unfortunately, we aren't able to to clarify that today um, with the Department of Corrections. But uh, when our our public information request just a couple of months ago, um, that's what we learned. And and what that means is that folks who are entering the prison system are still going to be forced to withdraw from their medications that they've been on. It means they're still going to have to go through their incarceration without access to that medication and that they're going to get uh, so, some medication on their way out. But what we know is that that is a medication um, that is not has been shown to be as effective um, as the the other two medications that we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's it's just it's not a, a sufficient measure, uh, and it, it's not addressing the needs of the individuals um, on behalf of whom we're, we're bringing this suit. Gotcha. And you wanted to say something as well, Dr. Burma? Yeah, certainly. Substance abuse and overdose are increasingly found to be 
contributing factors to pregnancy-associated deaths in the United States. And the Milagro program is a wonderful program, and Milagro does a great job at st providing stability to pregnant persons who have substance use disorder. However, that does not address the issue that the corrections department is not following the guidelines laid out by the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecology, which says that postpartum pregnant persons should be continued on their MAT because the chance of relapse is significantly higher for pregnant persons after they give birth. They're going back to an environment that is obviously destabilizing. They're being separated from their child. This is a high risk period for them to relapse. And oftentimes we're seeing that even if we start them on mat in Milagro, we get them stable. They're being forced off their medications when they go back to the corrections department. And that is not following the standard of care. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like regardless of what the uh, the corrections department does with this pilot program, you guys are going to continue with your current missions, it sounds like. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's correct, yes. So MDC does have a program in place providing methadone and Suboxone, and it has been relatively successful. Um, according to documents from the Recovery Services of New Mexico, which is a private company that runs the MAT program at MDC, it initially started by only providing continuing prescriptions to people who were already on MAT in the community. Um, but the program eventually did expand to include introducing illicit users to MAT if they wish. People who are on a MAT program were almost 20% less likely to end up back behind bars than inmates who were forced to detox, according to Recovery Services. Plus, the program saves taxpayers money in the long run by reducing recidivism. It only costs $23.50 a day to provide MAT to an inmate, whereas it costs more than $116 a day to incarcerate someone. I actually found the following testimonial, which was written by someone who got introduced to MAT when booked into MDC. It says, quote, Without all of you and this program, my success would not have been possible. I want to thank you for your efforts and dedication to really changing people's lives. I never thought I would ever see the day that drugs don't cross my mind anymore. I was given a second chance at the life I deserve, and I want you to know that I share this success with you. I couldn't have done it without you. Today, I'm not only clean from heroin, but shortly after my meth addiction followed suit. Thank you, and I love you all. You also helped me receive uh, these grades and my very first driver's license. Now, of course, all that information does come from people providing the services, so there is a bit of a, a knowledge uh, or to, a bias to acknowledge there. Um, but Dr. Birnbaum, as somebody who's been looking very closely at these sorts of programs, what do you think of the work that has been happening at MDC? Does this look like the same sort of program that you would like to see in other facilities around the state? I think that the approach that they're taking at MDC is very promising, right? It's not only guaranteeing the right of maintenance treatment, meaning continuing what people are on in in the community, and I know that that is the subject of what the ACLU is talking about in their lawsuit with the Corrections Department, but it's also providing for what we would call induction, meaning starting people on treatment who need that treatment to begin their recovery. I think that that is a very promising approach that we would hope to see done across this state in jails as well as prisons, because as I said before, when implemented in different states, this has greatly driven down the rates of overdose and overdose deaths. And furthermore, it also decreases the spread of 
communicable disease, such as hepatitis C, which is a large issue in our state, as well as HIV. MAT is one of the number one ways we can reduce injection drug use, which is a big problem in correctional facilities. So I think that what MDC is doing is great, and we should certainly be consulting their group as we roll this out uh, statewide. Awesome. And Lolita, you had something to say? Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to add in um, such a beautiful testimonial that you read. And you'd asked me earlier, you know, what, what we hear from folks. Um, and I wanted to just jump in to say that that um, story is is one that sounds so familiar to me from people that I have talked to in prisons and, and folks who are on medication are looking forward to rekindling relationships with their children, are looking forward to living stable lives, are looking forward to being the kind of um, community members that they always hoped they could be um, free, exactly as this individual said, of, of having a day where they're not thinking about heroin or, or fentanyl or, or that, um, just that, that struggle. And and the MDC program is, is such a wonderful example. It was one of the first in the country. And one of the things that is so tragic right now about the Department of Corrections not providing continuity of medication is that folks who are in MDC and are finding stability um, on that program uh, and who then get sentenced to go to a Department of Corrections facility have to sort of slowly withdraw from their medication before they go. And and again, just losing this progress that they've made toward toward a different kind of life for themselves. Right. Being forced to start over again and again, like, like our caller mentioned. Yeah, and we do, speaking of callers, we have a, a couple comments from some listeners. First off, I have an email here that I'm going to uh, read out, and then we do have a caller as well. So the email says, um, that is probably one of those, and this is wanted to remain anonymous, um, that is probably one of the most important things that we could take care of in regards to people who are incarcerated. And he's speaking about Matt, needing Matt. I'm a recovering drug addict who was many times put in jail when I was strung out on heroin. I swear the suffering while I was in there was tremendous tremendous pain. I was thrilled to find out that someone snuck in Suboxone or whatever just to help ease the pain. Getting this in the jails and prisons would not only help the inmates tremendously, but it would help the COs working out there too. They wouldn't have to worry about inmates sneaking in drugs to the facility, and it would be a lot less of a problem. And I saw both of you nodding your heads quite emphatically with that. Did either of you have a response you wanted to say real quick? Uh, No, I I think this uh, writer in has... has uh, made a, a wonderful point about this is something that is most importantly good for the people who need treatment, but it's also really better for people in their lives, people around them, and for the systems in general. And and I know for some who are working in the systems, it can be hard to imagine a different way. Um, but I I do think that this person who's written in is is making a really good point that. Um, this is good for our communities, it's good for the individuals, um, and it's good for the systems um, generally. Awesome. And then next, we have Luke on the line. Um, Luke, what was your comment today? Uh, good, good morning, guys. Um, I'm, I'm, my name is Luke. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, I, 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 might, I, I don't know exactly what my comment is, but um, being a, being a uh, recovering uh, heroin addict, recovering... Um, everything addict. Um, six years clean from heroin now. Um, I was I was on it for eleven years. You know, I'm just really happy that you guys are uh, that you guys are 
talking about these these types of in, you know things about people being incarcerated and with suboxone, methadone, uh, Vivitrol, all that stuff. Which uh, when I started getting incarcerated at age 18, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, I knew nothing about this stuff. And uh, it was, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a double-edged sword, like I was telling the, the gentleman before. You know, it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's, these are magical drugs that help a lot of, a lot of people. And, they, you know, um, at the same time, bringing it into a facility of that nature, you are always going to have the people that are going to abuse those types of situations and, and going to abuse the, the power that has been given to them. And... Um, you know, just just uh, I'm glad people are getting more aware and more um, knowledge about these these uh, this this epidemic we have in our city, in our state, in this country that has you know riddled families with uh, you know death and all these things. I've lost my own brother. I've lost several of my friends. Um, it's just a it's just a sad sad situation we have here, and I'm glad people are 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 openly talking about this this stuff. You know. Yeah, thank you so much for calling in, and congratulations on your six years. That is excellent news. Um, yeah, and, you know, uh, actually going forward, there is one thing I, I wanted to bring up. You know, we do have money coming in. There was the recent uh, class action opioid settlement. You know, it's something that you brought up, um, Dr. Birnbaum. You know, uh, the money that's going to be coming from that is it's going to be distributed to a lot of governmental bodies. I think um, pretty much every governmental entity in New Mexico is going to be receiving some of this settlement. Um, the, I will have a link to the opioid settlement on, on our web post if the listeners would like to take a look at that. It's a very long document. It's very complicated. But basically, um, there's going to be settlement and, and these funds are supposed to be used for specific things. Is that correct, Dr. Mermom? Uh, yes, that's the case. Yeah, and so the the funds themselves, um, Matt in prisons, is one of the things approved by the funds. Is that correct? I believe it is. Yes. So with um, with your particular bill, uh, where is the funding coming from right now? Uh, we have been in conversations with uh, a number of the relevant uh, governmental bodies that would be involved in distributing uh, these funds. Um, and while I cannot speak to exactly uh, the distribution of how the funds would come mm -hmm. to fund every single element of uh, a statewide MAT program in uh, correctional facilities, we uh, do anticipate that at least some of that funding would come from the opioid settlement funds. Gotcha. So that's been a part of the plan from the beginning, I would assume, right? Correct. Yeah. And and if I, if I may just add, uh, you know, because I, I know this funding question, um, you know, comes up and it comes up probably for the Department of Corrections. And just exactly as Dr. Birnbaum says, we also know that providing this treatment will help reduce re recidivism rates. It could help reduce our, our prison population. And what we do know is that continuing to incarcerate people over and over in these cycles is, is far more expensive than providing them the treatment that they need to help make a change to help get themselves out of these cycles. And so, um, of, of course, we have to talk about where the money will come from and, and how these things will be funded. But it's important for us to think about um, 
how much money you know we could save if we were able to invest in in other things besides incarceration and i right. think this is an opportunity to do that yeah so you're saying it's more important to focus on looking about how much we can save instead of thinking about where the funds will come uh, from yes and i think just uh, thinking about shifting what we spend our money on mm-hmm. um that money that is saved from not having to incarcerate people can mean more people get treatment can mean more people have support um and and that's what we'd love to see, right? Safer communities um, where incarceration just it doesn't have to be such a big part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we are starting to run out of time, but real quick before we go, um, I just wanted to get a couple more logistical things nailed down. Lolita, so about, you know, for, for listeners that might not be aware, about how long would the process of this lawsuit take? Like, when could we see something actually come out of this? Great question. And, you know, there's no set formula. Um, Sometimes cases come to resolutions outside of court more quickly, but a lawsuit like this generally can take, uh, you know, two-ish years, you know, around that that time frame. Um, We would love to see uh, Dr. Birnbaum's legislation be successful. And if that legislation is successful and if the Department of Corrections complies with the requirements of that, you know, then then we might not need to take the the whole litigation journey after all. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, Dr. Birnbaum, looking here, um, with you've been approaching this from a public health perspective, and Lita has been pro- pro- approaching this from a criminal justice perspective. When developing the bill itself, did you have any input from other perspectives to ensure that there was a variety of different people contributing to this? Yeah, we... In developing this bill, we looked to best practices. And so that includes not only looking at legislation that has been developed in other states and has been successful in other states, but also looking to the research and the studies put out uh, by organizations such as the Legislative Analysis and Public Policy Association. And furthermore, uh, as Lolita has so nicely uh illustrated with anecdotes, you hear all the time from people who are returning home from prison and jail just how important these medications could have been to their recovery. Mm -hmm. Instead of having to frantically struggle to find providers to prescribe these medications when they came home, there is an opportunity here. People coming home from jail, coming home from prison could have been started or continued on those medications and you couldn't have had these interrupted cycles of recovery. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Birnbaum, for being a part of it today. And Lolita, thank you so much for being here. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to everyone who called and emailed to share your thoughts. And thanks so much to our guests, Dr. Nathan Birnbaum and Lolita Moskowitz. Let's keep this conversation going. You can still share your ideas on Twitter using the hashtag Let's Talk NM, or you can find us on Facebook, search for KUNM Radio, or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org. If you missed a part of the show, you can stream it online or subscribe to to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next week on Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll go over proposals to modernize our state legislature. That's next Thursday at 8. Our engineer is Roman Garcia. Bryce Dix handled the phones. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted. And Cave Movahead is our producer. I'm Daniel Montano, and this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.